Is time something that can be spent or wasted? John Swinton is the chair in Divinity and Religious Studies at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. He previously worked as a nurse and as a hospital chaplain. He is also an ordained minister. We sat down to talk about his book, Becoming Friends of Time. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. John, thank you so much for talking with me today. No, it's a pleasure. So today we're talking about time and timefulness and disability. Um, So why are time and disability related to each other? Well, it's interesting because time is something that surrounds us. It's something that's really important for everything we do. We kind of focus on our schedules. Everything's time and speed and movement in that sense. And we think that that's the way the world is, really. Um, But if, if you're always moving quickly always allowing the clock to to guide you, to shape you, to form you, then you end up leaving a lot of people behind. Mm-hmm. And the people that you leave behind are often people who are much closer to the way in which God understands time. Now. And so if we're racing forward according to the clock and leaving people be- behind, then A, it's a, a significant uh, lack of our faithfulness and there's a wound within the body of Christ. But more than that, we're missing the things that God is saying to us, like, so which is to slow down, take some time for those things that the world considers to be trivial, and you'll discover what it means to live in God's time, where time is something different. Like, so the time of the clock is, is linear, it's progressive, it's moving towards somewhere. But the time that we see in the Bible is all over the place. You know, sometimes it's, it's, we're back 2,000 years, sometimes we're in the present. The way Paul talks about it is amazingly. So, Paul, so God clearly has a different understanding of what time is. And the question that I look at in that book is how certain forms of neurological uh, uh, challenges can enable us to see God's time more fully and live more faithfully. Yeah, you specifically choose to focus on uh, brain damage mm-hmm. as your way of considering time. So what made that feel like um, kind of the right entry point for this consideration? Is there something particular about brain damage? Yeah, there is. There's two things. Uh, I mean, the, the, the thing that drew attention to me really was because at most of my life, I've worked around, alongside people who have various forms of brain damage, be that intellectual disability, be that advanced dementia, whatever it is. So I, it's always been part of my formation, part mm-hmm. of the way I look at things like um, but I, I'm drawn there because in a hypercognitive culture like our own, where you know you prize intellect and reason over mm-hmm. community and love and everything else, then this group of people who are, in some senses, living their lives in ways that are radically countercultural, really draws attention to some of the problems within culture and then some of the problems within theology. So if you live in a culture where intellect, reason, quickness of thought, these kind of things are prized as primary social goods, you know, you have to have that to interact well, to have your vocation, to get your job and so on and so forth, then it's, it's not too far from that, uh, that way of thinking to think that somehow when you have some kind of challenge in these areas, you become less than human because we kind of construct a humanness around what we know and uh, our value around what we know. So the first time you, you meet somebody, you'll say, you know, what do you do for a living? And then they'll tell you what you do for a living and then consciously or unconsciously, you'll put them in a hierarchy as to whether they're important or not important or, you know. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of ingrained in our society. But when you spend time with people who have had some kind of neurological damage or neurological trauma, 
you see that actually that doesn't work. Uh, you actually re- begin to recognise that being human is a much more full-bodied thing, that we engage with one another in practices of love, not just by thinking about it, but actually by uh, engaging with one another. Uh, and one of the interesting things about universities is there are always places where we think a lot about being human, but we don't practice it necessarily as part of what we do. And so therefore, you know, universities and some of the ways we think theologically can enforce that way of, of looking at people. One of the things I found fascinating in considering time was just simply to think, I don't often think about a clock. No. And what it means to have clocks everywhere. Yeah. Can you just help us think about that for a minute? That's bizarre, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> I even timed it. I said a minute. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> precisely. And the way you talk about something determines what you think you're you're talking about and how you respond to it. The because you know how many clocks do you see in the morning? Like, when I, I wake up, I look at my alarm clock. I look at my iPad. I look at my phone. Sometimes I look at my watch. Then I've I got four just in my kitchen. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go into the hall. There's a clock there. You get in the car. There's a clock there. And all the time you're surrounded by. Uh, it's by time and by clocks, right? Mm-hmm. And they really overpower your whole life. In fact, they, more than that, they actually gauge your life. Mm-hmm. So much so that you end up having to scheduling in, schedule in time for God, yeah. which is an unusual thing when you think about it, that you live in creation, that God's the creator of all you know, and we have to kind of fit them into our schedule somewhere. Yeah. So there's something wrong. And time is a commodity that we spend. That's right. You know, so... I don't want to spend time on that, or I want to save time. Precisely. So you buy time, you lose time, you use time. Everything you do with your money, you do with your time. So it reflects capitalist society, really, in that sense. That It's a commodity that you can give or withdraw. We certainly live for it, and we need it for sustenance, apparently. Yeah. There's another part where you talk about um, how it used to be that the church bell, you know, would ring on the hour. That's right. Or... There weren't like second and minute hands where yeah. punctuality was valued so much. Yeah. And that's shifted. Maybe industrialization or but it's certainly become woven into the fabric of our day. Absolutely it has. I mean one of the things I point out early in the book is the way in which the monasteries used time and the way in which bells and clocks were invented in order to call you to prayer, to give you the segments in the day where you remember God is and you gather together. So it wasn't to do with punctuality because we hadn't actually invented punctuality then. It was all to do with finding that right space and that right time to worship God. So time was a gift from God that you give back to God. But once it kind of gets into the marketplace, it becomes, as you say, a commodity and it becomes something that we own. And it's something that upbuilds us and God's forgotten about. So what's a better way to think about time? Well, one of the illustrations I use in the book is interesting. It's it's from a Japanese theologian called uh, Kasuka Kiyama. And he, uh, he notices that the average speed that a human being walks at is three miles an hour. Right? Okay. So Jesus, who is God, walked at three miles per hour. So God, who is love, walks at three miles per hour. Uh, so love has its speed. <laughs> His point is that if you're moving too quickly, it's very difficult to love because you don't notice anything. You're so busy moving past something that you don't mm-hmm. notice the things that are present to you in the present in that sense. And I, I like that idea of the three mile an hour God because it's a huge challenge, you know, because most of us move at nine, 10, 11 hours <laughs> during our working day per hour. Like. And then you have to ask the question, like, who, who's following who? If Jesus is walking at three miles an hour and you're walking at 11 miles an hour, you know, where's the Lord <laughs> in the mm-hmm. midst of that? 
And you might say, well, that's completely impractical, but then you could probably say the same thing about most of the gospel. But Jesus still tells us to do things that seem to be completely impractical. But at a minimum, I think what that 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 metaphor or illustration does is it reminds us of the purpose of time, which is to love. And if we can always hold on to that, then you can begin to see that all your practices need to be timeful practices. So even when you're in the midst of the busyness, you need to be aware that this time that's given to you is for that purpose, the purposes of, of worshipping and loving God and not another purpose, which is simply meeting the schedule. Yeah. I was reading um, a, just a paragraph out of a book by Bonhoeffer where he talks about the day being one of the first finished creations yeah. of God. And thinking about that not as like a little capsule, you know, but as a gift. Yeah. I think that's really fascinating. Well, time is a gift. And if you think about it as a gift rather than a commodity, it becomes something quite differently. Mm -hmm. So if you think about how you would be with somebody with advanced dementia, right? So you may say, oh, this is a waste of time. And I've, I've better things I can do in my time. But if you begin to realize that time is a gift that's given to you to give away, then spending time with people, even if you don't necessarily get the, the things that you want back, as you would in, in a kind of straightforward and ordinary relationship, is a profound form of ministry. When we reflect on time, you also talk about discipleship. Mm -hmm. So what are some common ways of thinking about discipleship? Um, what makes a person a disciple of Jesus? A disciple of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus. Um, you know, we certainly, depending on, I mean, I'm a Presbyterian, and it's, 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 it, I, I'm happy with that, but it's, it becomes really problematic because everything that we understand about the tradition comes through words. So salvation comes through proclamation of the word, uh, on personal and, and public. Uh, it's to do with reading scripture, participating in particular ways with people through your um, intellectual capacities, mm -hmm. which makes it very difficult if somebody has a profound intellectual disability who really has never had any words right. and will never have any words. So what, what, what does that mean? Right, and assent is so important. And, That's yeah. right. And so following Jesus becomes highly problematic if you have to know things about Jesus in that way. Or certain things. Um, but I'm always drawn to uh, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in relation to Matthew's call. So uh, Bonhoeffer says, Matthew, Jesus called and Matthew answered. And he says, you know, uh, people do argue uh, that there are historical reasons for that, that he knew certain things, didn't know this, and there were psychological reasons, knew certain things, thinking this way. And Bonhoeffer points out, you, don't have, I mean, you have to go outside the text to make any kind of assumption about what Matthew did or didn't know. Mm -hmm. The text says, Jesus called, Matthew followed. Uh, and for most of the time, maybe all of the time, the disciples didn't know who Jesus was. Like, no. They kept thinking they did and then realizing they didn't, and thinking they did and realizing they didn't. Yeah. So actually, intellectual knowing of Jesus is not, in my, my sense, is not uh, all that there is in relation to what it means to be a disciple. I don't, I'm not being anti-intellectualist, it's good to know certain things. Um, but you know, there's something about being in the world with Jesus that is profoundly important. So the, um, so the body of Christ requires people who know certain things, but the body of Christ also requires people who can feel certain things, who can manifest other ways of being human. Because it's not enough to know things, because I mean, James is very clear. 
you know, the devil knows more about God than you do. Mm-hmm. Go out and show me through your works what you do. Now, Luther wasn't happy with that, and I understand the theological <laughs> complications. There's some of controversy that. around James. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah, but it's it's, it's it, what James says is really interesting because, and particularly coming from a, a, a university context where people think a lot about what it means to be a human being. I don't think a lot about what it means to practice being human. Mm-hmm. So I think when you when you begin to think about following Jesus in that whole-bodied way, within which it's profoundly important that certain people do know intellectual things, and it's profoundly important that all of us together learn from those who don't know that, what it means to follow Jesus without words in that way. And that, that means to experience love rather than just to think we know what love is about. Yeah. Is there a story you can share that would kind of put a face to a concept or... Um, about how you've thought someone who showed you what discipleship looks like and the way that's helped you think through this? My major inspiration really underlying my work is Jean Vanier, I think. I think that what he's done and who he is and what he has achieved through gentleness and love and calling attention to the way of the heart is profoundly formative for me. But uh, but in terms of my theology, I think it, it would be impossible to do what I do without having some kind of uh, encounter with Jean Vanier. I spend quite a lot of time in, in the L'Arche communities, or I have done in the past, mm-hmm. uh, Jean Vanier's uh, communities. And for those who don't know about that community, can you tell just, just enough? Yes. Uh, Jean Vanier uh, is a French philosopher who spent his early days in, in the Navy, then went to study philosophy, philosophy of Aristotle, and then in at the early 60s, he uh, was visiting a series of institutions in Paris, and he was shocked by the condition that people were, with disabilities were living in. People were oppressed, were victims of violence and all sorts of terrible things. And so his response to that experience was not to create a social movement and try to change things, although in, that sense, in one sense he does do that, but to engage in a small gesture, to take three men with an intellectual disability into his home in Trolley in France and to live with them in the spirit of the Beatitudes and according to the friendships of Jesus. So they don't live as cared, didn't live as cared and cared for, they lived as people together as friends. And out of that movement, that small gesture, a movement of over 300 communities uh, throughout the world have emerged from that. Mm-hmm. With that, that dynamic, friendships of Jesus, living out the Beatitudes and not caring and care for, just we're together and friends. Mm-hmm. So when you go to a, a large community, they, are, they tend to be narrative communities. So they'll t- ask a question, they'll tell you a story. And so I was down there and I was in France uh, uh, doing a piece of research on how you access the spiritual needs of people with profound intellectual disabilities. So people don't have language or symbols in the way that religion sometimes demands. Uh, and this, this is a story that maybe helped to illustrate the point I'm trying to make. So it was this, this young man with Down syndrome called Jean, uh, Jean-Pierre. And so he'd been, uh, he'd been down in Paris uh, the day before to see the cardiologist. He had, a, he had a heart problem. And he came back and one of his friends said to him, where were you yesterday, Jean-Pierre? And he said, well, I was in France, I was in Paris uh, visiting the doctor. Oh, and the friend said, oh, and what did the doctor do? And he jumped it says, uh, he looked into my heart. And his friend said, oh, what did he see there? He says, he saw Jesus. <laughs> he says, really? What was Jesus doing? He said, he was resting. There's something very profound about that, because if we talk about the, the pneumatological indwelling of the spirit as a wonderful concept that we can have PhD seminars about, but Jean-Pierre says, Jesus is my heart, 
And more than that, unlike most of us, Jesus is resting because Jesus wouldn't be resting in my heart most of the time. He'd be anxious. Right, working <laughs> really hard. Trouble, but, um, that's right. Yeah. So, um, so uh, Walter Brueggemann uh, makes an observation in relation to uh, Jeremiah 22, 16, I think it is, talking about King Josiah as a good king. And what he says is, uh, he's a good king because he looks after the widows, looks after the poor, and then says, is that not what it means to know me? In other words, to know God is not simply to know things about God. It's a social practice, Brueggemann says. It's something that we do with our bodies in that sense. So Jean-Pierre, I think, is a good illustration of Brueggemann's suggestion that what we do, and we're loving God, we do with all all of whom we are and not simply with the things that we know. Because sometimes people who know a lot of things don't really know how to practice love. I'm going to ask another question that's going to betray how deeply this um, commodified sense of time lives inside of us. So if we were to try to, um, for those of us who do feel kind of wed to the clock for a lot of our lives, what would some incremental change look like? during one chapter of your book, I just wanted to throw all the clocks away. And I thought, oh, man, we'd all lose our jobs and <laughs> our kids right. wouldn't get to school. And, right. um, but I think that revisioning time as a gift from God has to be really, I mean, that's really important. Really if we want to recapture um, who God has created us to be with each other. Yeah. So what do you think that looks like for people who are, yeah. you know, inhabiting this age? Well, I think, you know, Walter Brueggemann's got a really interesting book called Sabbath is Resistance. Right? In that, he, one, at one point, he talks about the way that Pharaoh oppresses the Egyptians. And basically, he says that the reason that Pharaoh oppresses the Egyptians is because he's anxious. You know, the, 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 not the Egyptians, the, the Hebrews. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Probably oppresses the Egyptians as well. Anyway, he's anxious, so he, he oppresses the people of God, the people of Israel. Um, so they become almost like Valium to him. There are ways of helping him to relieve his anxiety. Mm-hmm. So he pushes them and pushes them and pushes them and pushes them uh, because he's terrified in case he's, he's, the famine comes and the grain vaults are empty. Right? Uh, and then Brueggemann notes, well, what does God do in that situation? Does he kind of break in with angels and warriors? He doesn't. He says, uh, take a Sabbath. Take a day in the week, he says, where you... Um, Remember me. And again, it's, it's, it looks like a ridiculous gesture in the midst of that, but it's fundamentally important for God. Take a Sabbath, because once you remember who God is, everything else takes some kind of perspective, I, th- I think. So I think there's two things that might be helpful in, in answering your question. One would be uh, don't read your emails on the weekend. Mm. No, take actually proper space when you're relaxing. If you have a Saturday off, don't be sneaking off and reading your emails or don't run into the toilet and hide and pretend that because nobody else knows it's, it's okay to do mm-hmm. that. In other words, empty your mind a little bit as far as you can and give that to God. But the other way and second way is just to th- think Sabbath. So when you're in the midst of the business of your day, look for Sabbath moments, mm-hmm. moments where you can find space. It may not be a, you know, a 24-hour Sabbath, but there are times in your day when you can remember God. And when you remember God, you can begin to find slowness or the slowness of God, even in the midst of the busyness of your life. So I think it's always a matter of drawing attention back to that which you're, uh, which motivates everything that you do. And finding Sabbath moments is, is, is one way to do that. Yeah. And it seems like for you, an inspiration in that has been the reminder of people 
uh, for whom the clock is a problematic paradigm oh, for it, existence. It, it, yeah. Absolutely. Is. I mean, yeah. if you think about something like somebody with um, with advanced dementia, right? So sometimes when you're alongside of people with that kind of life experience, you suddenly lock into them in a way that you don't at other times. So people may be very withdrawn and may, may be really concerned, but then suddenly you're, you, you lock into them either through vision or through words. Um, and I, I call that like a Sabbath moment, a moment when you suddenly realize that the connectedness of, of human beings before before God. And uh, now if you're moving too quickly, you don't get that. You can get all your tasks done, yeah. And you can have you can have fantastic care, but actually you miss out on something profoundly important about quality of that person's life. Yeah. Are there any other thoughts about time that we're just we just neglect? It's, it's tricky. Saint Augustine talks about time in, in, in his in his confessions, and he says that he knows what time is until somebody asks him to describe it. Mm. And I think that that's that's about right. Because I mean, one of the things that I want to try to I've tried to do in the book is to raise people's consciousness to something which envelops us. But unless you look at it intentionally, unless you bring it to the fore, you don't realise how both damaging and how beautiful it is. Yeah. And so, my what I'd like people to be thinking about is to treat time intentionally treat it as something that you notice rather than something that just washes over you and when you begin to uh, explore time intentionally you will find fascinating blessings and one or two curses in the midst of that as well you've been listening to the distillery at princeton theological seminary i'm your host sherry osting on our production and research team we have garrett mistowski and nee otto abrahams christy holly works the creative design angle From the whole team at Princeton Seminary, thanks for listening. 